Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks, uh, Julian and Steve, for the, the kind invitation and the introduction. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, usually, I start my talk by apologizing on, on, on the fact that I'm going to talk about such extreme emotions like hatred and anger and disgust and everything. But after Julian's introduction, I feel that I'm the optimistic side of this, <laughs> of this session. So uh, although I'm going to talk about these emotions, as, as promised, I'll try to be optimistic in the way that most of my talk will focus on the question of how can we overcome them? How can we overcome these extreme emotions? And I think that, uh, uh, at least as I see it, and I come from a place in which the conflict is ongoing for many, many years. I'm, I'm much more optimistic than what you presented at the beginning, but maybe I have to, because otherwise it will be much more difficult to survive there. Uh, uh, but, but before I start my talk and studies and present the ideas and everything, I think it's important to provide some background. And in order to provide some background, I'll start from the beginning. And this is my, my beginning uh, uh, 37 years ago. Actually, I didn't find a picture of myself, so I took a picture of my daughter. But, 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 but everyone tells me that we look exactly the same, and, uh, and probably it's even a compliment for me because she's much more beautiful than me. Uh, but, but, but seriously, uh, I was born in uh, 1975, and I'm, I'm saying it because I think that the background here is important. It's, it's important both in order to give you the context of the one who's going to present the, the, the ideas and the studies that I'm going to present, but also in order to give you the broader context of, of people who are involved in these kind of conflicts. Because 27 years before I was born, my father was born in 1948. And my father was born into a war, into the independence war, uh, in which Israel got its, its independence. And then a few years later, my father, or 19 years later, my father participated as a soldier in the Israeli army in his first war, and then two years before I was born, he participated in the second war, and then he went, when I was seven years old, he went, uh, the first time I experienced a situation in which my father is going to war for a very, very, very long time, and we lose some of our closest friends in, in this war, and this is the war in Lebanon, and then I can go on with it, the, the, uh, the second, uh, uh, the second Lebanon war, and I was involved in Etc. 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 The important thing here, and this is and just one second, and this is the, 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 the idea that I, I'm, I'm trying to convey. I think that there are two points here. The first one is I think that it's important for you to understand where, where I come from. I'm not an objective researcher who's studying uh, intractable conflict or ways to overcome intractable conflict. I have a very, very, very strong interest in this study, and this is the reason why I study it. I mean, I, 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 I hope that I'm doing it in the most rigorous and scientific way, but also, I mean, I'm trying to improve the situation of the area, I'm modestly trying to improve the situation of the area in which I live in. But more importantly, because my personal story is not very important, it's not very different from the personal story of many other Palestinians or many other Israelis or many other people who are living in situations of intractable conflict. But there's one important point that, that I, I want to convey here, and this is why I brought these pictures, and this is the fact that people like my father or like myself or like many other Palestinians on the other side or many other people who are living in these kind of conflicts, they never, never, or we have never, never experienced a single day in our lives in which we were not part of the conflict. 
And this is a state of mind that people that are not involved in the conflict, just, uh, it's very difficult to understand. The fact that every day we encounter people who lost their friends and, 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 and families or part of their families, every day, and it won't be too surprising to say that tomorrow I'll be back in Israel and in three days I'll, be, I'll join the reserve army and have to go to some kind of uh, war situation. And it's a very, very different state of mind from the state of mind of, peop- of, of people who try to understand intractable conflict and are living outside of these situations. Of and the second question I want to ask is whether the conflict that I study and uh, or most of the things that I'm going to present today whether it is really a religious conflict. Because usually when I study this conflict or I offer ways to overcome uh, the, the emotional barriers to this conflict, I see it as an intractable, inter-ethnic, and partially a religious conflict. But it's a, it's a big question. And I think that this question can be thought of in, in two different ways. On the one hand, there are no doubts that religious issues stand in the center of this conflict. And if you let, let just look at this data, this, this is data we collected last year, less than one-third of Israelis and Palestinians are willing to make compromises uh, uh, on, on issues related to the holy places, to Jerusalem, and these kind of things. By the way, the numbers, when you op- offer them a full package deal, are much, much more optimistic. But these are the numbers when you, when you ask only this a specific concrete question. So religious issues are very, very important and I would say a very powerful barrier uh, to, 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 to making peace in, in this conflict and uh, in conflict. Uh, that, that but, but by the way, this leads to some very, very creative ideas in order to overcome these religious issues. I'm sure Scott, Scott is, is familiar with them and I don't know how many of you have heard about them. But for example, two of the most creative or, or interesting uh, solutions to the problem of Jerusalem in the Middle East that were offered during negotiations. First of all, the, the first one was to offer the sovereignty of God, which means it will not be under the sovereignty of, of the Israelis or the Palestinians, but it will be under the sovereignty of God. And the second one, which is even more creative, at least in, in my uh, uh, view, was to split the Temple Mount to above and beyond the ground. So it will be... be uh, 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 will be in the sovereignty of the Palestinians below the ground and of the Israeli above, Israelis above the ground. But these are the kind of creative solutions you have to think about in order to deal with these kind of religious uh, issues. On the other hand, and this is very interesting, when you think or, or, or when you look at the actual population, societies that are involved in this conflict, these are not, these societies are not dominated by religious convictions. If you ask Israelis, would you define yourself, Jews in Israel, would you define yourself as a religious person? Between 20 to 25 percent, here it's 21.3, but between 20 to 25 percent will say yes. The rest of them will say I'm secular or somewhat traditional, but I'm not a religious person. And even among the Palestinians, there's no majority for people who define themselves as religious person. So the point I'm trying to make here is that Religiosity in this conflict and in conflict that are very similar to this conflict, and I'll mention them throughout my talk, can be seen as one part of the puzzle, but it's not the whole picture. And it should be incorporated into a more comprehensive view 
of the way we analyze the conflict. And I want to suggest here one way or one approach to see religiosity as part of a more a wider spectrum of what we call psychological barriers to conflict resolution. And we see religiosity as one example of a psychological barrier to conflict resolution. And the, interestingly, we talked about it yesterday, interestingly, one of the first, I don't want to say the first one because I think that Herbert Kelman talked about it before Sadat, but one of the first people who talked about the idea of psychological barriers to conflict resolution. One of the first people who really acknowledged the fact that conflicts are not just about real issues, tangible, materialistic issues, was Anwar Sadat. Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president who came to Israel in 1977 in order to start or, 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 or move on the process of, the, the peace process between Israelis and Egyptians, and see what Anwar Sadat said in his speech in the Israeli Knesset. And for me, as a social psychologist, this is an amazing statement, really an amazing statement, especially because it came from a politician. It came from a political leader, not from a social psychologist. And Anwar Sadat is saying, yet there remain, and he's talking to the Israeli public. He said, there remains another wall. This wall constitutes a psychological barrier between us. A barrier of suspicion, a barrier of rejection, a barrier of fear, of deception. This psychological barrier constitutes 70% of the whole problem. Now, of course, it wasn't really accurate, because it's much more than 70%, if you ask me. But, but, but this is what Anwar Sadat said in 1977. And, and he really, by the way, he really did some dramatic move in order to help at least the Israeli side to overcome this huge psychological barrier by coming to Jerusalem, by coming and, and giving his famous speech in the Israeli parliament, he did a dramatic move that really uh, 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 helped a lot in promoting the peace process. So what psychological barriers are? The first uh, uh, academician who came up with this, with this idea was Professor Lee Ross and his colleagues at uh, the Stanford Center for International Conflict and Negotiation. Of course, before that, as I said, Herbert Kelman talked about it and others, but this is the first formal definition. And Lee Ross talked about psychological barriers as psychological forces that govern the way we think, govern the way we interpret information, and in many ways, and this is the key point, they prevent us from identifying opportunities for peace. And this is the point I want to make here, and, and from now on I'll, I'll start talking uh, uh, about ways to overcome these barriers. The whole idea be, uh, behind psychological barriers to peace is that in, every situ in any or every situation of conflict, even the most destructive, violent, prolonged conflict, there are opportunities for peace. There are opportunities for peace but the main problem, at least as we see it, is that due to these psychological barriers that I'm going to talk about, the parties cannot identify them. They cannot see them as opportunities for peace. They cannot identify the benefits they can gain from these kind of solutions. And therefore, peace cannot be promoted or conflict resolution cannot be promoted. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that they are not there are no real issues on the basis of any conflict. There are real issues. 
But the real issues could have been resolved quite easily if there hasn't been these barriers that prevent us from identifying the solutions. Now, I'll give you two examples for, for it, uh, for, again, from, from our context. Two examples that, at least for me, are, are amazing examples in, 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 in the way they demonstrate the idea of psychological barriers. This is the first example. The first example is the, the Arab League initiative or the Saudi Arabian initiative for peace in, in the Middle East. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but this is a dramatic, this has been a dramatic uh, uh, initiative first uh, agreed upon in, in 2002 and then uh, ratified uh, twice after, afterward. I don't want to go into this, these details, but this is a dramatic initiative. It's a dramatic initiative because practically almost the entire Arab world offer Israel the end of the conflict. The conditions are not easy for most Israelis. The, condi the conditions as they are are not conditions that most Israelis can accept, but it's a dramatic initiative in the sense that it's the first time that the entire, or almost the entire Arab world come up with this offer of let's put an end to the conflict. Now, I don't want to go uh, into the details of the, the, the proposal and everything. It's, it's not so important for us. I want to talk about it, another aspect of it. Do you know how many Israelis, and I'm talking about the public opinion, are familiar with the fact that there is such an initiative? Can someone guess in, in percentages? How many Israelis are familiar with the fact that there is an initiative of the Arab world to, the end, to, end, to put an end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Can someone guess? 10%? 10%? Less than one. Okay. Well, less than one is more or less me and a few of my friends. So, you know, Israeli society is a very small society. 10% is a very optimistic number. And this is amazing. I mean, the, the actual number is about between 5 to 6%. And we're doing some public opinion surveys and we ask this question. It's not the question of whether they are familiar. They know that there is something about it. What, what we actually ask is, can you say one sentence about the proposal? One sentence. And I'm doing this demonstration in my courses and I teach conflict resolution, which means these are students who are really, really into these issues of conflict. And in each and every class of mine, there are like 70 or 80 students. If there's one student that raises the hand and say, I know something about it, this is a great class, really. Usually we don't have even one. And you ask yourself, what's the reason? What's the reason? The information is there. By the way, the initiative was published in Hebrew in Israel's three top newspapers, Mariv, Yediot, and Aleph. So no one can say it's not, it, it wasn't available, we didn't see it. It was there, it was available, we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it, not because we don't want peace, we don't want to see it because there are psychological, I would say emotional, other would say religious barriers that prevent us from identifying opportunities for peace. And we're not special in this regard. If I, when, when we study the Palestinian society, we see exactly the same things. And I could have given you an example from the Palestinian society. And when we study other conflicts, and I'll give you some uh, data from other conflicts, we see exactly the same. More interesting, and, and this is the, the, the second example I want to give you, when we do surveys and we ask Israelis and Palestinians, what would be at the end? 
Let's say it will take five years, 10 years, 20 years. Many, many more people will be killed, uh, injured, and will pay the highest prices we can pay. What will be at the end of this conflict? Almost 70% of people in both societies provide exactly the same solution. Exactly. Now it is changing with the idea of the one state, but, but, but almost 70% say we know exactly what will be at the end. We know. We know exactly what are the compromises that we are required to do in order to promote peace. We know exactly what's the compromise required from the other side. We know exactly what will be at the end. So two sides know exactly where, where they're going, know exactly what will be the solution at the end, but just cannot bridge the gap between the current situation and the, 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 the end situation of this conflict. Although there are opportunities, as you see here, but they just don't see them as opportunities. And this is why, for me, it's so important <coughs> to study the issue of psychological barriers, and it's even more important to study the issue of how can we overcome these psychological barriers. And what we did here, uh, Danny Bartal and myself, we, did, we just reviewed the literature on psychological barriers, and we created some kind of typology. I don't want to talk about all of this, but I want to talk about two issues that I'm going to mention today. And these are specific intergroup emotions. And the second one are the general worldviews, values, <coughs> religiosity, uh, and, and some psychological personality characteristics that I'm, I'm not going to mention right now. And my argument today, in, in, in the things that I'm going to uh, present uh, uh, right from, from the next slide, would be that by changing people's emotions, by directly or indirectly help people to regulate their emotions during the conflict, we can overcome other kind of barriers, like the religious barrier, like other kind of barriers that are much, much more difficult to cope with if you don't think about the emotional part. Okay? So from now on, we're going to talk mainly about emotions. I'm not going to give you a, a full introduction about emotions and everything, but, but, but I, I will say two, two or three things just so we'll all be on the same page when I'm talking about emotions. And the first thing is, uh, seriously, as someone who's been living, now you know, it's 37 years in the context of intractable conflict, I really don't think that we can study long-term conflict, religious conflict, ethnic conflict, without understanding the emotional aspect of it. I really don't think that we can talk only about ideologies, rational cal calculations, or considerations and, and you know the, the more the, the rough or objective political issues because emotions are very very dominant in these situations and emotions have, have have huge huge influence on the way people behave and on the way people make decisions in these kind of situations or in situations of interactive conflict. And, and there are many, many different definitions of emotions, and I'm, I, I, I really, I'm, I'm really fond of, of this definition of emotions as stories. Emotions as stories that guide our behavior, that guide our decisions, or rationalize the behavior or the decisions we've already done. And more specifically, what we're saying is that each and every emotion has a unique story. And this is a critical point because, because this, 
this will be the basis for everything I'm going to propose here in terms of overcoming emotions. If you want to really understand how to overcome hatred, you can't just say, we hate them, they hate us, uh, they, they, they are killing the other side because they hate. Let's reduce hatred. You have to understand and to delve very, very deeply into the unique story of hatred. And the unique and hatred here, just to, to, to be clear, it's just as an example. I could have talked talk about any other emotion. Okay? The unique story of hatred is very different from the unique story of anger, and very different from the story of contempt, and very, of course, very different from the story of despair or hope. And if you want to be serious about using emotions in, all, in order to promote conflict resolution or peace, the first thing you have to do is to deeply understand the emotional story. And the emotional story is composed of the unique interpretation or cognitive appraisal of the, of the reality, of the situation, and of a unique emotional goal and action tendency. How do we interpret or appraise the actions of the other side? And how, does this, the, the, how do these interpretations lead us to form motivation, motivations, goals, and action tendencies? So there are two main challenges for people who, who want to think about emotions as a way to promote conflict resolution. The first, the first challenge would be to identify the unique story, as I said right now. What's the unique story? What are the specific, uh, what is the specific influence of each emotion on conflicts and on conflict resolution? And this is the basis for everything we want to do in order to use emotions uh, 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 as a conflict resolution tool. And the second part would be to offer or to identify ways to change these stories, to change these emotional stories. Of course, the f before we change these emotional stories, we have to be very, very specific in the emotions we really want to change. Just to give you an example, from our studies in the recent years, we see that some of the emotions that are considered most negative in conflict situations, let's take, for example, anger, can really be constructive can really help to promote peace. And this is a, a, an insight you can gain only from the understanding of the unique story of anger. I'm not going to talk about it right now, but if you want to ask questions at the end, I'll be happy to, to address this question. So we want to identify the unique role of each emotion, and then we want to figure out ways to overcome the emotions. I'm going to focus only on the second part here, because I promised you to be optimistic, right? So it's not enough. Uh, to say hatred would lead to this and that, and anger would lead to this and that. What I want to offer you is a way to overcome these emotions or to change these emotions. And basically, we do it in two <coughs> different ways. Basically, we do it in two different ways. One way would be to ask people and train them in regulating their emotions. And there's a huge a, a, a number of psychological studies about emotion regulation in recent years outside the, the field of conflict resolution, not related to conflict in any way. But psychologists know today much better than they knew in the past how to train 
people in, to, to regulate their negative emotions. And one way would be, and this is what I call the direct way, okay, the picture you see here, one way would be to train people in regulating their emotions with the hope that maybe if they know to, if they'll be better in regulating their emotions, they'll respond differently to conflict-related events. Maybe when Israelis who know how to regulate their emotions will be exposed to the Arab League initiative, they'll at least consider it. They'll at least be willing to read it thoroughly. Okay? Well, not so thoroughly. Read it somehow. The second way, and this is the way I'm going I'm to start right now, is uh, start talking about right now, is an indirect way of emotion regulation. And here, we don't ask people to regulate their emotions. Because one of the problems with asking people to regulate their emotions, and I'll tell you, it's a secret, but, but I'll say it anyway, anyway here, is that in many cases, people who are involved in conflicts don't want to regulate their emotions. They want to feel fear. They want to feel angry. They want to hate the other side. And there are many reasons for that, and I'm, I'm willing to talk about it. So, so in a way, we have to do it in an in, or we have to at least also try the indirect path, and I'll try to, to talk about it a little bit right now, and then I'll move to the more direct path. So it, it looks a little, when you look at the picture, it looks a little bit you know uh, manipulative or something, uh, uh, but this is the way we think about it. We think about it as if first we want to identify the emotion we want to change. When I look at the Israeli society today and I identify the problems. Let's say that I feel that the main problems are huge despair, okay? People don't believe that anything can be changed. So despair is the emotion I want to change. Then I go to the unique story of despair, or unique story of the emotion, and then I try to find simple interventions that can be implemented through the media, can be implemented through the educational system, can be implemented through different channels of communication. But these are specific interventions that are meant to change only this specific emotion. And one of the biggest problems, problems as I see, of many intervention programs that try to reduce these kind of conflicts is that they talk in a very general way. We want to reduce mistrust, hatred, fear, anger, promote empathy and hope. Well, it, so it sounds great, but it's just not realistic and it's not focused enough. And what we, what we offer here is a much, much more focused, fo focused approach to, this, to these ideas. And I'll... I'll, I'll Start by providing you the example of hatred, because I think that hatred is one of the most dominant, powerful, and destructive emotions in, in any conflict that we can think about in, in, in the history of human beings. So, we identified hatred as, as, the, as the target emotion, as the emotion we would like to change. And many people will tell you, we're... We, we, we are aware of the fact that hatred is a terrible emotion in any situation of, 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 of difficult, destructive, violent uh, conflict, but it's not something that you can do anything about. You cannot really change hatred. You cannot really make people who hate to, to suddenly change their feeling towards the other side. And we say that it's possible. 
We say that it's possible if you're doing something very focused and if you deeply understand the nature of hatred. And this is why we did many, many studies between 10 and 12 different studies in different places around the world trying to identify the core or the unique story of hatred. What differentiates hatred from any other negative emotion? And at the end of all this process, the, the answer was very simple. The answer was people who hate the other group will tell you it's not just that they hurt us, it's not just that they behave immorally, unjustly, uh, uh, violently, uh, whatever you want to think about. It's the fact that they do it because this is the way they are. This is the way they are, and they will never change. They were born this way, they will die this way, and this is the way they are. Now, think about, and I can tell you that hatred, I, 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 I wrote my, my PhD dissertation on hatred in conflicts, and hatred is a very dominant emotion in, in these kind of conflicts. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is no one really tells you that they hate. I interviewed 50 Israelis, I did some in-depth interviews with 50 Israelis, 50 Israelis when I started the interview told me I've never felt hatred towards anyone, never in my life. But then when you keep on talking to them, suddenly you hear some terrible things that fall exactly into this definition of hatred. But think about the state of mind of someone who feels hatred. In terms of conflict resolution and, and promoting peace, if you believe that the other group is evil by nature and they will never change, what's the use of, of talking to them, negotiating with them, offering them gestures, offering them, there's no reason in the world to offer them anything because it's not, their behavior is independent of anything that you will do because this is the way they are, right? So no reason to offer anything. And this is a critical emotional phenomenon that has to be changed in order for us to, to even think about promoting conflict resolution or peace. So the only thing we have to do is to change this specific belief, the belief that they are evil by nature, they will never change, this is the way they are. Now, one of the problems in doing, in doing so is that those who've been living in intractable or ethnic or religious conflict for so many years, they already know, they feel that they already know the other side. Try to go to Palestinians who are living under occupation for so many years and tell them Israelis can change, they, they will hit you in the, in the face. No, seriously, and, and, and they have good reasons. And, and the same for Israelis. Israelis who suffer from terrorism, missile attacks, and, and everything for so many years, you go to them with your nice social psychological ideas and you tell them uh, the other side can change. Well, believe me, the other side can They don't buy it. They don't buy it, and they have good reason not to buy it. And actually, in studies with them, when you offer them this idea, it backfires. They don't want to hear about it. But there is another option, and this is to do it in, in an indirect way. And here, we, we, we base our ideas on, on, on a famous psychological uh, theory of, of Carl Dweck from, from Stanford University. And, and, here, and the idea here is that you can think of the world as splitting into two groups. One group believe that, and I'm oversimplifying the theory, but I'll do it uh, because this is in, in, in 
limitations of the time. One group believed that, that people and groups can change. That people and group can change. They can change, they can develop. Not specific group. Not the specific group that we're in conflict with. Okay? People and groups can change. And the other group of people believe that you're born the way you're born. This is the way you are. Groups are the way they are. They will never change their values, behavior, attitudes, etc. And we thought, wow, it's, it's a good idea. If we can change people's belief, not about a specific group in the conflict, but the general belief about whether or not groups can change, maybe we can do something. Because if Israelis tell you that Palestinians cannot change, it is based on a more fundamental assumption that groups in general cannot change. And then maybe indirectly, without even mentioning the other side, we can do something about it. And this is exactly what we did. And we did it in seven different studies in seven different places, not four different places around the world. I, I will not present everything. But basically what we did is a very, very, very simple intervention in which we conveyed the message that groups can change. That in the history of the world, even the most violent, racist, fascist group went through a dramatic change. It happens. Group behave, groups behave the way they behave because of their, to some extent, because of their leaders, because, because of their economic situation, because of different situational factors, and not just because of who they are. And we did it by using a very simple intervention. They read something. It took them like a minute or two minutes. And the results were dramatic. Just to give you one example, this is the support for making compromises on the most important issue of the Israeli-Palestinian, maybe together with the refugee issues, or the issue of Jerusalem, making compromises in Jerusalem among those that didn't go through our intervention. I mean, this is the, let's say, the, the, the basic level. And this is the support among those who we're brought to believe that groups can change. It's an increase of 33%. It's a huge increase. And everything, or almost everything, is going through a change in the levels of hatred. Which means that we convince them that groups can change because we realize that this is the core idea behind hatred. We convince them that groups can change. It reduced their levels of hatred only hatred, not other negative emotions, towards, in this case, the Palestinians. And it increased the, the willingness to make peace with the Palestinians and to pay the price and make the compromises for that peace. I won't go over the, the whole data, but, but I'll just tell you that we did exactly the same thing with Palestinians in the West Bank. We did exactly the same thing with Palestinians in Israel. We did exactly the same thing in, in Cyprus between Turks and Greeks. And more importantly, at least for me, we did exactly the same thing just recently in a, a small educational intervention based on a three hours education workshop. And we got the effects two or three weeks after the intervention, and not just immediately uh, uh, on site. And this is a very, at least for us, a very interesting thing because it shows how, it shows how 
by doing or by changing a very general but simple belief of people. You can, you can indirectly regulate their emotions, their hatred, reduce hatred, increase their support for making compromises, and, and, and this is one example for a, 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 an emotion regulation process with it. I don't know how long is the time. I think we will. Um, okay, so 15 minutes. Okay. So, so I'll just provide you with one more simple example, and then I'll move to talk about direct emotion regulation. So, in the second example, we had a totally different goal in mind. We said one of the biggest problems of long-term conflicts, long-term intergroup conflict, is the, is the fact that groups are not willing to take responsibility for their wrongdoings. And even when they do some very problematic, immoral uh, uh, actions, they don't take responsibility and uh, as a consequence, they don't compensate the other side, they don't respect the other side, etc., etc., etc. And from the literature in social psychology, we know that the key emotion here, the key emotional process that can lead people and groups to take responsibility, to compensate the other side, and the whole process that I've just mentioned, is group-based guilt. Is the, is the feeling of guilt, not shame, not other emotions. Group-based guilt can lead societies, groups, individuals, to accept responsibility and to support providing compensation to the other side. But this is a very, very, very challenging task. Because, and, and, and I'm not talking about here about conflicts that, that have ended, but I'm talking about enduring continuous conflict. And taking responsibility during the, the, the violent or during the period that the conflict is still ongoing is a very, very, very it's something that groups don't want to do. They don't want to do because in many ways it reflects on their image about themselves. It reflects on their image about their role in the conflict. If, if Israel will accept responsibility for wrongdoings they, 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 they or we do to the Palestinians, it says something about our role or our contribution to the continuation of the conflict. It says something about our morality. It says something about things we don't want to hear about. And this is why it's so comp it, it is such a complicated task. And here again, we tried somehow to help or to indirectly upregulate guilt among Israelis, Palestinians, and we did also among Serbs in, in Bosnia. And in order for them to accept responsibility and offer compensation to the other side. And here we use a very very simple idea. We knew that the main story we want, want to change here is the acknowledgement or the acceptance of responsibility. We want people to accept responsibility. But in order, uh, but, but when we ask them or to, to accept responsibility, then the, 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 the dominant reaction usually is a defensive reaction. Immediately, it's a defensive reaction. I can tell you, we did a study that I'm going to present right now, one week after the end of the, of the Gaza war between Israelis and Palestinians. One week after the end of the war. And you have to understand that in Israel, most students are taking part in, in, in the Israeli army. Okay? And my research assistants went into the, the classrooms and tried to distribute questionnaires. 
and they were almost hit. Seriously. I mean, students started to yell, how dare you to, to do such studies and to ask us about our responsibility. They shoot missiles on us and we only defend ourselves. And this is exactly the reaction we got from the Palestinians and exactly the reaction we got in, in anywhere you'll go. Because this is a, a natural defensive reaction of a group who wants to perceive itself as the moral side of the conflict, the just side of the conflict, like any group in a conflict. So how do we do it? So how do we help or induce the acceptance of responsibility and group-based guilt? And here again, we use the well-known psychological theory that is called self-affirmation. I will not go into the theory, but I'll just tell you what's the basic idea. The basic idea is that you want people to accept responsibility, but at the same time, you want to help them in preserving their positive, their moral self-image. You don't want to tell Palestinians that Palestinians are immoral by nature. You want to tell them, you're a moral society, you do some very just things, but here you, make a, you made a mistake. You made a specific mistake, and for this mistake, you have to take responsibility, and you have to compensate the other side. These are two very, very different stories. And when we feel guilty of something, it doesn't mean that we say we are immoral human beings. It only means that we say we feel guilty because we did something wrong, something specific that was wrong. And what we did in this series of studies uh, that I'm going to present right now, we offered people an opportunity to strengthen their positive self-image before they were exposed to this negative information. So very simply, I'm not going, I don't want to go too, too deeply into the, to the method and everything, but just to give you a sense of what we did, it was one week after the war in Gaza, there was a terrible event during the war in which Israel or the IDF killed a, a Five, four daughter and a niece of, of a Palestinian doctor. Remember the event? Of a doctor that is called Abu El Ayash. He was one of the supporters of the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians. And it was a terrible mistake. A, a mistake. A, 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 I, I want to believe that it was a mistake of, 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 on the Israeli side. But although the IDF, the Israeli army, accepted responsibility for it, the Israeli public didn't. The Israeli public really thought of it as, you know, this is a byproduct of a war situation. The Palestinians are the ones to blame for the war. And this is why we shouldn't take responsibility for these kind of situations. So we did something very simple. We went into these class, classrooms of, of, of students and we allowed them to affirm their positive self-image. We asked them to write down on two or three cases in their lives in which they are proud of their moral behavior unrelated to the conflict, unrelated to anything that is relevant to the Gaza war. And only then we expose them to the events during the war, to this specific event. We did it with other events afterwards, but this is just an example. And the results, again, were very, very, very interesting. This is the level of guilt accepted by those who are not exposed to anything, who are not asked to affirm their positive self-image. And this is the level of guilt of those Israelis or those students that were allowed to affirm their positive self-image, which, which means if you want to 
upregulate guilt, first you have to allow the object or, or the person to affirm their positive self image. You don't want to tell them you are bad by nature, you are immoral by nature. And if you allow them to affirm their positive self image, then, and again, I won't go into statistics, then they accept responsibility, they feel higher levels of guilt, and they support offering reparation to the other side. So again, and of course, this study was uh, uh, replicated in, 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 in the Bosnian context and in, Israel, in the Palestinian context, and we got exactly the same results in all places. Again, we identify the emotion we want to change, and this is group-based guilt. We identify the unique story, and this is acceptance of responsibility without reflecting on my core characteristics or moral values. And then we offered a very simple intervention that can help people to accept responsibility, and it works. And this is the kind of things you can do, again, through education, through many, many different uh, aspects of our lives. So these, these were two examples for in, what I call indirect emotional regulation, one with hatred, one with guilt. If, if you want to ask about it in, in, in the Q&A section, then I can tell you about some studies about despair and hope. How do we promote hope through indirect emotional regulation? We have some studies about how do we turn anger from destructive to constructive. And, and we did it in, in, in several studies, but this is more or less the direction. These were just two examples. To complete my talk, I want I want to talk about, or I want to I want to uh, uh, present two very very brief ideas uh, uh, that deal with direct emotion regulation. And here the picture is a little bit more complicated, but I think that maybe there is also a potential here. And when we're talking about direct emotion regulation, and I already mentioned it before, we're talking about situations in which we really directly train people to regulate their emotions. And most specifically, I talk here about one strategy of emotion regulation that is called reappraisal, and I'll define it in a second. And, and uh, this guy, James Gross, is one of the most important scholars of emotion regulation, and he's also my a collaborator on all these studies. And the idea of reappraisal is very simple. The idea of reappraisal is that we want to make people think of any event after they already went through the event, became angry, appraised it in a certain way. We want to make them reappraise it. We want to make them rethink about it from different perspective usually from an outside perspective. It's not perspective taking. It's not taking the perspective of the other side. No way. Because this is much, much more problematic in conflict situations. We just want to make them think about it from a different angle, from the angle of an outsider, maybe an objective outsider like a scientist. I'll say a few words more about it in a second. But we know that this is a very, very, very successful way of emotional regulation in many different emo in, in many different psychological studies it has never been it has never has never been tested in the context of long term inter ethnic intergroup conflicts and the first study again i won't go into details but again the first study was conducted during a war this was during the war in gaza and we wanted to check or to examine the assumption and, and, and this is a very important point listen carefully that above and beyond different ideological positions, 
people differ on the way they, resp they respond politically to the war according to the way they regulate their emotions. Which means that people who are better in what we call reappraisal or in regulating their emotions will respond to the events of the war which are traumatic anyway in a much, much more constructive way and I'm talking about politically in a much more constructive way. The fact that emotion regulation can help you deal, you know, psychologically help you deal with the war is, is not a new thing. But does it really change the way you want to respond politically to the events? And here we, we did a, a large survey during the war in Gaza, and we found some very, very interesting, although correlational, link. We found that above and beyond different political positions, those who better reappraised their emotions during the war preserved more hope to the future of the conflict and expressed more support in providing humanitarian aid to the Palestinians in Gaza. And for us it was, it was although only a correlational indication, but a, but a very, very important indication because it tells us that by training people to regulate their emotions, potentially we can change their political attitudes during war or during peace talks or during other conflict-related events. And this was a, a very interesting indication, at least for us. And, and it makes sense in a way, because if you believe that emotions are such a powerful tool in, in, in conflicts, then regulating them should change something. Okay? Now I move to the, to the last study I'm going to present. And this is our most recent study. And as usual, this is the study that I'm most proud of because it's the most recent study, so, so this is the way it, it should be. Uh, uh, and here what we did is we used what we call an ambush study. An ambush study is a study in which you know for sure that something is going to happen. Something is going to happen in the conflict, and in this case, it was the Palestinian bid to the UN. The Palestinian went to the UN to ask for uh, independence, and we knew that it's going to happen in September of last year, and it was a predictable event. It is something we could have prepared ourselves to. Okay, and what we and we knew that no matter what will happen during this event, Israelis will be very, very, very angry. And today we know that it wasn't such a big deal, but. At, at the time, it was considered in Israel like a huge betrayal of, of the Palestinians in the whole idea of peace negotiations and peace talks and, and everything. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a reason for it, but this is, this is the way it was, it was perceived. And what we did here is we took, we took a group of 60 Israelis, not students this time, and we trained them in reappraisal or in emotion regulation before the event. We train them on reappraising their emotions unrelated to the conflict. We just train them on how to deal with emotional events. And it was one week or two weeks before the event itself. And then during the week, during 
the week of the Palestinian bid to the UN, we just sent them text messages reminding them to use the strategy we, they, they taught, unrelated to the conflict. We didn't say anything about the conflict, the Palestinians, the Israelis. We just mentioned the fact that they should use the strategy we, we taught them. And then we measured, listen carefully, it's, it's interesting, at least for me, in, 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 when I think about this as an applied tool, we measured their emotions and political attitudes towards the Palestinians 10 days and five months after this trade. And just to make sure that we're all, on this, we're all on the same page, the training took about 20 minutes. 20 minutes of emotional emotion regulation. Training, again, along the line of think about the event from different perspective, like an outsider, like a scientist in an analytic way, etc., etc., etc. I will not go over all the results, but basically the results were very, very, very encouraging. Both... 10 days and five months after the event, we got some very significant differences in both emotions like hatred or anger towards the Palestinians and in political support for making compromises and other gestures to the Palestinians between these two groups. The group that went through these 20 minutes of emotion regulation training Let's go directly to the, to the last slide because this is the most interesting. <coughs> Expressed significantly higher support for compromises comparing to the other group while controlling for political ideology and everything five months after the training. And again, it was mediated by their level of anger, which means that they felt less angry towards the Palestinians compared to the other group, and the anger or, or the, the, the decrease in the level of anger led them to express more support for making compromises and gestures and all kinds of things. To summarize, uh, I think that we're only in, in, in the preliminary stages of this huge uh, project. We're almost convinced that emotion play a very, very powerful role in conflict and in conflict resolution. We feel that we don't know enough about the way emotions can be changed or emotions can be regulated, but we're pretty sure that if there's something that is so powerful in these situations, and if there's knowledge aggregated knowledge about the way that this something or these emotions can be changed, then we must use it. And we see that by changing the emotions, and you saw the data about support for compromises in Jerusalem and other things, we can overcome some of the barriers that are much, much more difficult to deal with, like the religious barrier or like other barriers that we talked about. We're still asking ourselves questions about the relationships between religious convictions and emotional experiences, religious convictions and uh, uh, the way people regulate their emotions. We still ask ourselves questions about the motivation people, the motivations people have to regulate their emotions. We're not so sure that people want to regulate their emotions in these kind of situations and we're not so sure that these strategies can be successful 
if people don't have the motivation to change their emotions. So while one of our main challenges, and we're, we're already working on, on, on this, is to provide them with the motivation, to help them believe that it can really help them and their group if they will regulate their emotions. I want to thank all my, my, my collaborators and, and, and the friends who helped us with these projects, and thank you very much for listening. Well, uh, thank you very much, Erin. Now, we've got about 25 minutes for questions. Let's start over here. I'll start with Roger Tree. One of the problems in these kind of conflicts is, of course, the lack of trust, trust and distrust. Can you count those as emotions or not? So again, I heard the beginning of but on the end of the question. Well, I was talking about the notion of trust, trust. and the lack of trust, distrust, and the fact that that is obviously a very essential feature in in these situations, that if people don't believe what the other side says, we've <coughs> got a problem. Now, how far does emotion enter into that or not? Okay, so, so it, it's a very good question because trust is one of the one of the most central. I don't know if to call it an emotion. There is a debate yeah. in the literature of whether trust is an emotion or more like a cognitive way of thinking about the other side. Um, we know from from. Uh, studies that already exist, the trust has huge influence on many decisions people may, are, are making during the conflict. We don't have, and this is something we want to do, and I know that Scott is working on and, and others, about the way you can really uh, uh, increase levels of trust. We haven't done it yet. Uh, I can tell you that there's, today there's a, a, a discussion ongoing in Israel between the people both in the Israeli side and the Palestinian side of whether trust is really necessary. I mean, whether we should really, I mean, because the, the despair is, the levels of despair are so high, and the levels of mistrust are, are so high, that people started thinking of maybe we can bypass the problem. Maybe, and I'm not saying that I, I would vote for this, but maybe, uh, uh, I mean, the challenge of developing trust is, 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 is impossible. And maybe we should try to, to make peace or to promote conflict resolution without trust. Or to try and develop the trust during the interactions or during the negotiations themselves and not to think about trust as something you have to do before you go into this process. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, or I'm almost sure that I'm not on, the, on, the, on, on, on this group, but, but, but this is an option that is, that is discussed. Okay, uh, Monica Todd. This is sort of a follow-on to Roger's question, which is social identity theory, so more generically or more broadly, um, that you tend to see your enemy as constitutionally one way or the other, whereas you tend to see your friend's situation way. So, Steve, you're a nice guy, you're down in the dumps, you know, you're out of money, so you're going to rob a bank. You're not a robber, you're just robbing a bank, whereas if I didn't like you, I thought you were a schmuck, you know, I see you constitutionally as a guy who's a robber. He robs a bank. And so I'm just wondering if you guys have any support, because it, it seemed to me you don't have to go after particular emotions, right, trying to get rid of anxiety, fear, or hatred, but trying to sort of retune or recalibrate these societies to start seeing the Palestinians, so from the Jewish perspective, to start seeing the Palestinians as a friend rather than an enemy, right? And so you're moving away from that constitutional other as bad, malign, or whatever, 
to situation like, look, they're in a bad place. Wouldn't you then respond in the same way? Have you guys done any tests sort of getting at that rather than specific emotions? Because it seems to me in some ways then you could you go after the problem, I, I think, a little bit bigger uh, with some of these, um, I guess, interjections that you're trying to do in a lab setting. Okay, so, so first of all, happily, most of the things that you saw here are not in lab setting. Uh, more like an educational intervention. Right? Uh, uh, so, so there are di different di different aspects to your question. So I'll try to answer them one by one. Uh, first of all, I think that what you're talking about is less of a social identity theory and more like the fundamental attribution error and all these kind of things. The, the way you overestimate situational factors uh, when you're talking about your group and or the in group and and underestimating these situational factors when you're talking about the out group. And in a way, what we're doing here, and this is part of the project I, I didn't want to, I didn't uh, uh, have time to present right now, we think that there are connections between different kinds of variants. I don't want to go into this too deeply, but if you think about it, the idea of fundamental attribution error that you just talked about, uh, which is part of Lee Ross's original cognitive and motivational barriers, the, the way he defined them. And if you take the ideas of Bartal and, and Kelman and others about ethos of conflict and, and, and the collective memory and narrative of the conflict that talks about delegitimization of the other side, etc., etc. And if you talk, you'll take our idea of, of hatred, which goes to the, to the domain of, of emotional barriers, they speak to the same, to the same ideas. Okay? And of course, there are differences in the psychological dynamic of, of the way emotions operate, the way uh, societal belief operate, the way cognitive biases operate, but, but, but it's the same. I agree with you that it's the, these are the same core ideas. But it's very different from going to, and now I'm going to the, to the last part of your question, it's very different from going to the, to the big picture. Because in a way, what you're offering, at least as I see it, is what has been done up until now. I mean, let's do interventions to help, the, to help us see the other side, to understand the narrative of the other side. And these are very, very, very nice words, okay? But they are just, at least in my modest view, they are just too general in order to work. You have to be, at least from my modest experience in, in, in these issues, you have to be very focused in your intervention interventions in order for them to, to help or, to, or to, to build something that can last for, for a long time. And you're absolutely right, you know, in terms of content or substance, this is exactly what we should do. If, you're, if you can offer a way that will help us to see the other side, to understand the narrative of the other side, so, so it's, it's ideal. But I'm, I'm, I'm just finding it hard to identify the intervention that can do it. And this is why I'm going to a much more focused interventions that are specific, aimed to change specific goal, or, spe or to address specific goal and to change specific emotion. Okay. By the way, that's a wonderful talk. Thank you. I was very interested early on, you talked about the unique stories of various emotions. And um, I wonder whether you need to talk about unique stories of various emotions or just stories. Um, obviously, in, in Christianity, one of the most famous examples is the Good Samaritan. You tell us a, a good story about a hated outgroup. So that's, that's one issue. The other issue, um, this is an interesting news article from a couple of years ago. When Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, um, they banned certain musical instruments from being played. But what we found fascinating, uh, the piano, the violin, the flute. But the drum um, is permitted. And... Um, 
I wonder whether you have, have done the investigation of the role of music, because clearly there are other people involved in this conflict who think that music is very important. Thank you. Uh, we, we, no, we, we haven't done it, but, but, but I know that some people are doing some things with, with music, both on the more emotional side, thinking, you know, that some things can be changed emotionally through music, and, and both in the, in the level of cooperation. I mean, let's do, you know, music together, create something together, develop something together, and then, then things can change. But it's, it's a great idea. I, I wasn't involved yet in, in this kind of efforts. Okay, now my list is getting uh, longer than um, I'm working through the people, so can I ask you all to keep them uh, questions snappy, please? So right up the back there. Um, the three parts of the question, but they're all related. <laughs> 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 You're breaking your rule. The three parts. Um, the, the amount of effort required for this, this is, this is one thing. So it, it, and go, going along with that, is this replicatable? Uh, you know, if you can't do it in any critical numbers, critical mass, and the third part, again, related, both sides, if, if can you get this going on both sides? Okay, these are, these are great questions, and, and, and the answer is complicated. Uh, one of the basic criterion for everything we do, uh, every study we, 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 we even start thinking about, is that it can be applied to, to both sides and in large numbers, which means that we can take it out of the lab and we can do something uh, uh, along the lines of the ideas we find in, in, in the lab. Uh, but there's still a gap between, you know, uh, whether or not it's feasible and whether or not we can really, you know, do it in terms of funding, in terms of anything you can think about. Everything you saw here, we already tried doing in outside the lab. Outside the lab, I mean uh, through education, through the media, we ha we we're involved in some in very interesting project dealing with uh, mass media and the more traditional media. We're developing uh, programs, TV programs, to the Israeli and to the Palestinian uh, uh, television station, and we get very nice cooperation. And the programs are aimed at conveying exactly the ideas we're trying to, uh, I I've talked about here. The problem is, and this is another thing that must be understood, the problem is that we're not working in a vacuum, which means that all other media products or most other media products in Israel and in the Palestinian Authority works exactly on the other direction. Most of them are going along the lines of the, the ethos of conflict about the idea that we are the moral side, we want peace, the other side doesn't want peace, they're willing to sacrifice their children, etc., etc., etc. So even if we get to do something, you know, it's, it's a very small contribution, but, but we're trying. And, 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 and for your second question, everything we do, we do on both sides, both Palestinians and Israel, Palestinian Israelis, and we try to do it also in other places around the world. So, so we don't have studies that are based only on Israeli data or Jewish data. Okay, Julian. Um, I had lots of questions too, so, but I loved your talk and it's a great example of really good applied psychology. Um, so I'll just ask one though. I, I wonder whether you've considered um, manipulating the, the sort of the biological environment in which these emotions occur. So Miles Houston will speak tomorrow in our group, have a student who's found that propranolol reduces racial bias. 
and we've been studying a wide range of commonly available drugs which have influences over, very, over emotion and various aspects that are relevant to cooperation and negotiation. And particularly within negotiators, uh, these strategies would be, would be excellent. But have you considered biological manipulation of the, of the sort of underpinning uh, of those emotions? Because it's clear that emotions are associated with a certain... So, so, so this is something that I feel that I'm, 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 I'm still successfully running away from. But, but, but I know that, that it, 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 I'll be there at some point. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the study of emotions, the study of emotion regulation, and its connection to biology, physiology, and, and brain studies and everything is, is almost yeah, something you cannot separate. And, and I'm, I'm getting th- these kind of questions almost every time I present uh, these studies, and, and, and also we, we're getting you know some offers for collaborations and everything. So, so we'll probably get there at some point. But my feeling, and, and of course it's my subjective feeling, is that I I don't have enough knowledge yet about the substance of, of the things. I want to first understand how the emotional process operates in, in these situations, what really goes through people's minds. And then, when I'll have this understanding, then we can move, at least for me, I mean, I'm not, I mean, you know, one approach would be to say, if you can find a magic, I don't know, a magic drug, something that will change everything. It's great, even if you don't understand how it operates. But I feel that it has to go step by step. And I first have to understand the real mechanism, and then we can move uh, uh, to, to do the, the, the biological stuff that are, that are definitely relevant. But, but, but I don't feel that I have the, the, the required knowledge yet in order to move there. Okay, I'll tell you how you... Yeah, uh, two very brief questions. One, just clarification. When you spoke early on in the paper about the, um, uh, the studies that showed various things, uh, you said that there was... Um, you'd found that... Uh, People were agreed on both sides of the Israel-Palestinian thing about what would be the end of the conflict, but you didn't say what it was. <laughs> and, uh, it occurred to me that it might have been, you know, destroy the other side, or it might have been two-state solution, or it might have been, and you just didn't tell us. And it, so first question, you didn't tell us. Second thing was, I was wondering, uh, more generally, uh, it could be, uh, you study the regulation of emotions, by which you mean basically the regulation of negative emotions. Uh, at least contextually negative emotions. They may have some positive things in other contexts and so on. I wonder, could you do the same sort of thing with positive emotions that bear upon this, this whole conflict? To some extent you do by, by contrast, as it were. But would it be possible to do something by way of, of bolstering uh, compassion, uh, sense of justice, feelings of hope, uh, feelings of... Uh, fairness and so on. I mean, I don't know if that's occurred to you. It's a great question. So so for the first part, first I want to make sure, I I want to make sure that I was clear. I didn't say that there are 70% of support in both sides for the solution. I just said that there's an agreement about what will be at the end. It's it's basically the two-state solution along the lines of the Clinton parameters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this is the, I I won't go into details, but this is the basic idea. For the second question, which is Great question. So, so the, the simple answer is yes. We're doing both. We started with the negative emotions because we felt that they are, you know, the, the, the huge barriers for this. And then we moved to talk about negative emotions that we see as positive. For example, we, we make use of, of uh, 
upregulating fear and upregulating anger to promote peace. So you will call them negative emotions, I call them constructive emotions in terms of the conflict. I, I, Guilt is two-faced that way too. Yeah, I agree. And then now we're doing some work on positive emotions, mainly hope. Hope we find as... as and, and the reason we do hope is that we tried other emotions, like empathy, for example, and we found some mixed results about the implications of empathy. We found that people can be very empathetic towards the other side, but it, it will lead them, let's say, to support like humanitarian aid or some personal issues, but it doesn't really change their political attitudes. While, while, while increasing hope does lead to change. And we did some studies, I can tell you like very briefly, uh, we, we did, there's a line of studies about hope that is very similar to what we, you, see, you saw here with one change. We're not telling them that the groups can change. We're, we're telling them, we're conveying the idea that conflicts of this kind has been resolved in the history. Because I don't know how many of you had the experience to talk, about, to talk with people in these kind of conflict situations. They are absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that their conflict is unique. It's unique, it's different from anything, it's uncomparable to anything that has happened in the history of human beings. And one of the things we're, we're doing is we first give them or, or give them the information saying, look, there are different kinds of conflicts around the world, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, with, you know, it's, it's in a group with other conflicts that are very similar. And then we we'll tell, we'll tell them, well, look at the history. Some conflicts in the group in which the Israeli conflict, Israel-Palestinian conflict belong to, has been resolved. So it can happen. And, and, and this is a, a, an intervention we've been doing, and it is working. We also do some, some dynamism <laughs> interventions. I mean, showing people that, that, that the world is dynamic. Political situations are dynamic. Political situations change. And, and there, there are other, other things, but, but we, we tr just on, on, on our first steps of working with, with positive emotions. Again, very similar to hatred, ho hope, there's also a debate whether hope is, is really an emotion. Yeah. But it's, it's somewhere. To follow up on the question about critical mass and also uh, about really how successful you can be, in critical mass there seem to be two ways of generating it. One is through leaders who can force opinion, and the other is if you expect a certain threshold in your population, so for example, you expect 20% of the people to agree with you. And if you find out that 30% of the people agree with you, it tends to spiral up. But if you find out that only 10%, if you're disappointed, it spirals down and usually collapses. So the question is, one of the problems is how to generate more surprising consensus. The second thing about leaders is, and it's a, it's a, it's a dilemma in what you propose. So you say, well, let's reaffirm, for example, in the guilt, uh, apologies, taking responsibility. Let's reaffirm uh, the positive side of our side's morality, and that allows you, allows you to make an apology or to acknowledge a mistake. The problem is, when you publicly address this issue to the other side, the other side takes the initial move as a hedging, and always, almost always, takes it as an insincere apology. Mm -hmm. And that's worse than if you didn't make any apology at all. So the question is, how can you do that, this affirmation procedure, make the apology without having to present it to the other side through this whole process? Okay, so, so 
it's a big challenge. And my immediate reaction would be as following. First of all, in what we did, we didn't affirm the positive image related to the conflict. I mean, you're absolutely right. If, Israelis will, if the Israeli prime minister will say to Israelis, well, we all know that we are the moral side of this conflict and that the other side are murderers and etc. But this time we made a mistake, so I'm with you. So it's a problem. But we did something different. We asked them to reaffirm their positive self-image on a domain that is totally unrelated to the conflict. You can feel good about yourself and still believe that you did some mistakes or during the conflict. And, and I think that it's a, it's a different thing. Another answer to your question would be that the affirmation of the morality of the in-group in these kind of conflicts is something that people hear and talk about every day. Every day. It's not something, if Israeli Prime Minister or Palestinian President will say tomorrow, we are the moral side of the conflict, it won't be something different from anything they say every day. Really, seriously, this is, what they, this is part of their ethos. So I don't think, that, so such statement will not change the, the psychological status quo. But if it will be followed by an acceptance of responsibility, suddenly something changes. And for, for your first question, and again, it, it opens a, a, new, a totally new uh, 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 gate to, to talk about different things, but I'll give two examples. I, I absolutely agree with you that one of the key one of the, the, the key things we should do in anything we do here is to surprise, is to create surprises, is to somehow, you know, make people, we call, you know, Arik Kuglansky called it unfreeze, to, to unfreeze people's thought. And, and we do some different surprising things. I can give you two simple examples for things we, we've done recently and worked quite nicely. One thing, and, and it, it was in the project of, of increasing or upregulating hope, we examined what would happen if the in-group will criticize itself, not on issues related to the conflict. What would happen to Israelis if they hear Salam Fayyad, the Palestinian prime minister, and this is really the study we did, say something about the fact that Palestinians do not or have to fight corruption more. Palestinian society is too corrupt, okay? Suddenly changed Israeli positions. It increased levels of hope and changed their positions about the Palestinians. And we did the same among Palestinians, not on issues related to the conflict. It's not accepting responsibility for something. It's just criticizing our in-group. And there are various reasons for it. I mean, you can say it's a surprise. You can say suddenly they say, they say something that we can agree upon. You can say, we, so we're similar in the way we, we see the, the Israelis or the Palestinians. So many different reasons. For me, the main issue here was surprise. I mean, the, the, it's something they didn't expect. Second thing I think that we talked about it yesterday is we, we, we examine what will happen in situations of what we call counter-empathy. If suddenly the other side expresses empathy towards the suffering of the out-group, surprisingly, and we use the speech of, of a Palestinian uh, Knesset member that talked in, 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 in the Jewish uh, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day, and said something like, something you wouldn't, Israelis don't expect to hear from Palestinians, said something like, well, the Palestinians suffered throughout the history, and we had our tra tragedies and everything, but, the Israel, but it's uncomparable to the most dramatic uh, 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 
event in the history of human beings, and this is the Holocaust, and we as Palestinians have to at least empathize with, with the Israelis. Something, and, and this was a true speech. And this is someone that Jews in Israel really, really hate. I mean, it's the most hated politician in the in, in, uh, Palestinian politician in Israel. And suddenly, when we presented this speech to Israelis, everything changed. Everything. Most of them were really, really confused. They were surprised. Really? No, seriously. Think about it. Suddenly, you hear something. You hear, and, and, the, and, and if you think about it, you don't pay any price for such speech. He didn't say that it means that the Palestinians should not get the whole uh, uh, t- territory that belongs to them. Or so. No, he didn't say anything like that. He just expressed empathy. And we saw that it totally changed Israelis' emotions and political positions. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that I answered your question, but I hope it was interesting. So I know that I'm, I'm aware of the fact that surprise is a powerful issue. I'm aware of the fact that we should examine which messages or emotional interventions can really move beyond the, the 20% of, of expectation. Uh, I'm, I'm less familiar with, with the ideas about leaders, but this is your job, so I'm not... Uh, okay, we've got about six questions on the list, and I think we've only got time for one, so Liz Carmichael. Um. Okay, well, very, very quick. Thanks very much for your very fascinating um, presentation. My uh, experience has been in South Africa. A lot of what I know from there maps right on to what you've been saying. Um, I just wanted to raise um, a question specifically on, in the religious field. Um, all of this is very familiar, uh, from traditional spirituality, particularly in Christian spirituality. Um, and it's not, it doesn't have to be general, the idea of controlling your passions and, and putting positive virtues in their place um, can be very specific. So um, I just wanted to raise that and ask you if perhaps you've looked at um, traditional spirituality and its methodology applied to individuals, not, not only to groups, so it does apply to groups as well. So, so uh, I think that the, your question is important in, 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 in two different aspects. I mean, it's important in terms of, you know, the more <coughs> practical aspect of we can learn something. And, and, and I can tell you that there's, there's an interchange of, of, of ideas between the emotion regulation scholars and the, the religious scholars on, on these issues. Uh, both the more, you know, traditional religious, like Christianity and everything, and, and also, you know, Buddhism, uh, the, the different ideas of um, mindfulness and, 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 and it's very I mean and, and, and there's a communication between them and, and it's, it, it works nicely and, and I'm in a way what I do is just to use the existing ideas that they already gained for our purposes in conflict but there's another aspect to what you said and, and for me is, is of no less importance and this is the fact that you know usually we see religiosity in these kind of conflicts as, as a barrier or always, always a, as a, and, and, and what you're saying, and, 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 and I think it relates to, also to other ways or approaches to the study of religious and conflict, and this is that we can really learn a lot from, and, 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 and I think that you can find indications for these ideas, not just in Christianity. You can find them in different uh, religious perspectives, and, and, and this is very important. Okay, well, thank you once again, Aaron, for a fantastic talk.